reading today is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 30. And I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What could, more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left, and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A home or a seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and tambourines and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and the masses, with all their brawlings and revelers. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled. The eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the Holy God will, pro will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed amongst the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit, and wickedness as with cart robes. To those who say, let God hurry, so that let him hasten his work, so that we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are hero heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up the straw, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their roots will decay, and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, and spurned the word of his Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised, and he strikes them down. The mountains shake, and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. 
He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles, not one slumbers or sleeps, not a belt is loosed at the waist, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, and all their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion, they roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey, and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea, And if one looks at the land, there is only darkness and distress. Even the clouds, even the sun will be darkened by clouds. This is God's word. Uh, Let me have my welcome. My name's Matt, if we've not met Matt Fuller. And uh, I'm a vicar here. But uh, I think we need some help as we come to uh, Isaiah 5, uh, this parable that uh, uh, we're given. Uh, So let's pray. Let's pray together as we begin. A great God and Father, in a culture, in a world, in a time such as ours, when we're not quite sure what our leaders are saying, we're not quite sure what is true, what is bluff, how we need, how we long for your truth. And so, Father, thank you that what you give us here in your word is, it's real, it's honest, and it is for our good. So would we... By your spirit, hear it that way, so we respond rightly with thanks to you. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Look, I won't appeal to all. I don't know how much of the, um, the Rugby World Cup you've, you've watched. It's not everyone's thing, but it was also one of the wrong time of day uh, for most of us, if you have a job. Um, but the weekends are okay. If you've watched any, there's a bit of a fuss about some of the refereeing, so the issues of tackles. And how high you can tackle is uh, pretty controversial. Uh, I won't get into all of that. But um, unsurprisingly, quite often after the matches, you'll, there'll be, a, say, a red card. Very important decision. Uh, probably turn the match. And then you'll get um, two opposing managers. And of course, unsurprisingly, one says, well, it was obviously a red card. It was obviously a red card. I mean, the man had to go. And the other... Uh, particularly if you might be called Michael Checker for those, uh, will say, um, outrageous, outrageous, terrible decision, ruining the game. Uh, Can't believe it. And you think, well, you know, both of you have a slightly vested interest in the outcome. And maybe the sort of seconds after a game has been won or lost, you know, you're not the most well-placed to judge uh, such a thing. But at least it's a bit more polite, I guess, in, uh, in rugby. Um, I've seen it this way, you need to go off. Okay, sir, thank you very much. And off they trot off the pitch. Uh, of course, the sort of footballing equivalent, perhaps you're more familiar, uh, tackle goes in, ref immediately ooh, surrounded by players. You know, there'll be a 10, does a jostling in his face. You have the manager on the sidelines brandishing the sort of imaginary card. Get him off, get him off. Uh, and again, the post-match interviews uh, in the football just... One manager, well, obviously it was a red card. He, he had to go. And the other one said, well, I'm going to get fined for saying that, but that's the worst referee I've ever met in the whole of my life. Obviously I'll get fined, but I'm afraid I just have to tell it how it is. And you think, yeah, fellas, you may have a slight vested interest in this. And I don't suppose all the time they're being deliberate. They're not so completely... Um, deliberately or willfully being biased in their opinion, but when you're so emotionally involved, it's very hard to be neutral. 
It's very hard to be dispassionate. It's very hard to be accurate. Well, that's because we humans, we're not great judges. We're biased. We're partisan towards our team, ourselves. And so when you come to a chapter such as Isaiah 5, describing God's verdict and God's judgment, we just need to be a little slow to say, well, I think the ref's got this one wrong. God the ref has, what, he's, he's overreacted. Well, because when it's talking about justice and judgment upon humanity, you and I are not neutral. We're pretty invested in this. We're not going to respond without bias. We are like the cockeyed managers afterwards who say, outrageous. How can my team be so badly treated? But just like them, you might want to say, well, <laughs> you just go to sleep and have a think about it. Uh, and when you actually review the evidence... The judgment was good. You and I are not great referees or judges when we're emotionally involved. The living God is. And that's all we have in Isaiah 5. If you're just joining us, then we've, um, well, this term, starting a little look at the uh, early chapters, to this term, chapters 1 to 12 in the book of Isaiah. Overall, then, the whole book is a story of how God takes a corrupt people, that is, the nation of Judah in the 8th century BC, how he takes a corrupt people and he's going to turn them into a godly or a holy people. That really is the narrative of the overall story of the book. And this opening chunk in chapters 1 to 6 are explaining some of the ways that this nation is corrupt or has got things wrong. And if you have been here for the last couple of weeks, well, it's been okay-ish. So chapter 1, 1 to 2, 5, they're, they're terrible, but God's got offers hope. I'll do something about your corruption, says the Lord. And then chapter 2, verse 6 to 4, verse 6, they're terrible, but God will do something. So there's hope. And then you come to chapter 5, and they're terrible, and there's no hope. And that's our passage this morning. It's condemnation without hope, just so you know where we're going. It is somewhat bleak, chapter 5. Verse 30, in that day there'll be roaring, and there's only darkness and distress. Got it. So let's look at it this way. There's the parable. So there's a sad song of judgment, verses 1 to 7. We'll look at the stink fruit of judgment, uh, and then lastly, the certain roar of judgment. Okay, there's a sad song, there's stink fruit, and there's a certain roar. Let's work through it together. First, then you get this parable. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. There's a sad song of judgment. So Isaiah is speaking, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. I will sing of the one I love, a song about his vineyard. Now, that's just quite striking. Isaiah can say of the Holy One, the one who is completely different, completely other, the one who we'll see next time in chapter 6 overwhelms him. Yeah, he is holy, this God, but I love him. It's pretty striking. You read through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah knows nothing of unemotional faith. Nothing of mere intellectual knowledge which doesn't engage him. He knows nothing of that. But the song he sings here is one of anguish. And I hope you pick that up. The Lord here is pained by his judgment. 
as we'll say later in chapter 28, this is his strange work, his alien task. It's not what he wants to do. All this work, and it's described really, I guess you have here of a, of a man who puts an, invests an enormous amount in a vineyard. It's a picture we've had already uh, last time in chapter 3. The leaders had ruined the vineyard of God's people. But look at all the effort that goes into it. So what are we told here? My loved one, that is the, the, the living God, he had a vineyard. It's on a fertile hillside, so he searched out a good spot for his vineyard. He dug it and cleared it of stones. Okay, so he's put in hard work. Verse 2. Still in verse 2, he plants the choicest of vines, not just run of the mill vines, not just anything you can get from your local garden center. These are, you know, this is the best stuff. Verse 3, he builds a watchtower. I look, I really care about this. I just want to make sure no animal people get in and and, and, uh, attack any of the fruit here, steal the crop. He cuts a wine press. I'm looking forward to uh, the fruit, so I'm getting ready. Uh, not here quite straight away, but verse 5, when he says he'll take away the hedge and the wall, well, clearly there's a bit of, sort of a double layer of protection. Keep out the, I'm no expert on the animal, foxes, I don't know. What eats grapes? Chickens? I don't know. Um, uh, greedy humans. Anyway, but there's a double layer of protection here. He's put a lot of effort in. And... So I'm told by the vintners, two years minimum he's going to wait from planting to seeing the first harvestable grapes. So the picture is of someone putting in an awful lot of work, a labor of love, a great investment. And then a question is asked, you can imagine Isaiah preaching to a crowd, verse 3, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, says the Lord. What more could have been done for my vineyard? And the crowd engaged by this little narrative, this little parable, nothing, that's great, you've done everything you could possibly do for a vineyard. I mean, that's top-notch sort of stuff. But first of all, when I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? What more could I have done? Nothing, you've done everything, but I only got bad grapes. Oh, I just quite enjoyed this one. It, it, literally, in, in the Hebrew, it's stink fruit. Stink fruit. I wanted grapes, I just got stink fruit. I were no use at all. Oh. So what's God going to do with his vineyard that's produced nothing but stink fruit? I mean, he's done everything. The choicest of vines, everything's perfect conditions. He just gets stink fruit. Well, verse 5, he says, I'm going to withdraw. Verse 5, I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge, and it'll be destroyed. I'll break down its wall, and then it'll be trampled. God says, I'll take away my protection. And without me, well, verse 6, it'll become a wasteland, neither prunes nor cultivated, briars and thorns will grow there. Oh, and I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. There'll be no fertility. I better withdraw my blessing, says the Lord, from this vineyard, from the people of Judah. Protection gone, blessing and rain gone. Without me, ruin. In case we're in any doubt, verse 7 interprets it for us. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, the people of Judah. 
for the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Oh. Before the details of the stink fruit, as it were, let me just notice three things about this song. First, just the anguished tone of it. So the Lord says, I, I delighted in these people. I'd invested so much in these people. I loved these people. I, I had great hopes for these people. And yet, what's happened? I look upon them in verse 7. It's just no justice in the courts, but bloodshed. No righteousness. Just some of the poorest in society crying out in distress. I had such high hopes. I'm just so devastated by what they've become. I have, I've got to act. So notice the anguish tone. Uh, secondly, the, the, the question here, he's given them every chance. That's the point of verse 4. What more could I have done? I'm asking you, what more? What more could I have done? See, it's easy for us to say, well, God judges too quickly. But remember, you and I are not disinterested. We're not neutral referees. We're emotionally involved. We're human beings too. But God's perspective here is, look, I, I did wait, but I've got no choice now. I have to act because of the levels of injustice. Let me give you, I hope this is okay, but a somewhat, in one sense, tragic example. You might think of uh, some social workers looking on at some failing parents and saying, look, we'll give you all the support we can. We'll give you all the help that we can. We'll give you everything we can. But after a while, say, do you know what? These kids, they're crying out. And they need to be taken away. We've tried everything. We've given you so much support. But there comes a point where you say, we can't let this go on. We don't want to do this. It's tragic to be in this scenario. No one wants this. But we've got to do it. And generally, the public will say, well, you know, we don't like it. We don't like to see that. Yeah. But then, of course, as a profession, they'll get utterly lambasted indeed criminally charged if they fail. You know, this is the worst case the last few years, the baby pee left, in, left with negligent parents, eventually, of course, removed from a bloodstained cot with 50 different injuries upon, upon the child. And at that point, we say, well, you waited too long. You should have got on with it. Why didn't you intervene earlier? And the Lord is saying, I waited as long as I could. But there comes a point where I have to act. Gives me no pleasure. We've got to do it. That's an emotive example, but here the Lord is saying, What else could I have done? I had to step in. So there's an anguished tone here. He gave them every chance. But do you notice that the nature of the judgment in, in Isaiah 5 is withdrawal of blessings? I will withdraw my protection, the wall, the hedge. I will stop the rain. Well, this happens literally within a generation or two as uh, the nation of Judah is invaded. 
But that 8th century picture of one land, God withdrawing his blessing from the one people, the nation of Judah, and then being invaded, that 8th century picture, it is just that, a model of the end of the world, where God will say, look, I've had enough. Time's up. Judgment comes. And this world will end. But the Lord says here, look, look, if you don't want me after all I've done for you, after all I've given you, okay. But when I withdraw all my blessings, you've got nothing. Because every talent, every gift, every ability you have is from me. Every blessing you enjoy in this life is from me. And if I withdraw, it is misery. It is, well, in the language here, it is broken, trampled, desolate. That's a sad song says Isaiah. And it is. It's a sad, anguished song of judgment. There's no pleasure in this, says the Lord. Then in the rest of the chapter, we get some more detail on what was going on. What were these bad grapes? What were the stink fruit? So let's look secondly then at the stink fruit of judgment, the stink fruit that caused God to act in judgment. There are six uh, here. They're all introduced with a, a woe. Six things that led to the Lord's uh, uh, acting here. So first you get in uh, verses 8 to 10. Uh, 8 to 10. Woe to the, well, the property developers. Verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Now, without going into the detail, the Old Testament law, it protected individual property rights. So neither the state nor one individual is allowed to buy up everything sort of strong on individual responsibility. And if you did buy extra, buy people's land, you had to give it back after a period of time. Here are rapacious, exploitative landlords. That's what's going on. They've left, verse 8, no fields for the average Joe to live off, to grow their crops on. Now, let me just be crystal clear. The Old Testament nor the New Testament neither will condemn wealth per se. There is nothing wrong with property or pleasure. We'll get to in a moment. Here the issue is, or the questions that are often asked in the Old, Old Testament and New, how has your wealth been accumulated and how will you use it? There is no problem with you having vast wealth. Godly characters in the Bible have vast wealth. How have you got it? How will you use it? If you've got it through exploitation, woe to you. If you only use it for your own good, woe to you. But otherwise, no problem. But here, they've gained it through well, exploitation, and they're, they're, they're making sure that no one else has anything to live off. It's selfish accumulation here. Now, do you notice verse 8? Has it made the property developer or accumulator happy? No. They live alone. It's miserable. Because the pursuit of wealth, it's an insatiable activity. It can leave you friendless. In verses 9 and 10, here's the future. The Lord Almighty is declared in my hearing. Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. Tiny amount. Hopeless. A homer of seed. You can see the sort of the footnotes tell you sort of what's going on. 160 kilograms of seed produce only 16 kilograms of grain. That's not right. 
He's saying, you may well have a pension pot of a million pounds and all to give you is 500 quid a year. Oh. Yeah. You think you got loads? Produce nothing. Whoa to the, well here, the sort of, I guess the, the property developers, the accumulators. 11 and 12, well, woe to the pleasure seekers. Verse 11, uh, woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and tambourines and wine. Again, there's nothing particularly wrong with a pipe or a tambourine. Um, but here's the issue. They have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Pathetic picture, isn't it? Verse 11, they rise early in the morning to run after their drinks. You watch The Crown, Netflix sort of G. Bad pun, it wasn't meant to be. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Princess Margaret comes off pretty badly in the crown. You see her partying at night and she sort of emerges slowly in the morning as the lady in waiting draws back the curtains. Only the gin! Uh, first thing in the morning doesn't emerge particularly well. Or at the other end of the spectrum, perhaps you see it more, more commonly. The chap on the street who's homeless and is cold and is bored and is lonely and is numbing himself to reality by getting drunk and you think yeah I'd do that I don't blame you you don't want a sandwich if you're cold and lonely and bored you want to get yourself drunk so you're numbed to the cold and you're numbed to the boredom I would do the same I'm sure in your condition and I think that's the picture here if you have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, verse 12, and no respect for the work of his hands, well, then you may well want to just dull out the truth of eternity and numb yourself with entertainment, numb yourself with drink. Because who wants to deal with the fact that, wow, there's nothing beyond this life? Oh, I just can't deal with that. Let's just have another drink and pretend there isn't. And not worry about the future, not worry about matters, things that actually matter in life. Just doesn't matter if you have a gin in the morning or a man on the street. It wants as you're just numbing yourself to realities. Okay, look, just to be clear, the Bible has no problem with property, no problem with pleasure. Enjoy them both, but not as a substitute for the Lord. They are insatiable, will never satisfy you. Verses 13 to 17 give you the consequences. We'll come back to them. But then verse 18 picks up the woes again. They're just a bit more staccato here. They come sort of relentlessly. I think Jesus must have meditated upon this chapter. You get the same from him in, in Luke 6, Matthew 23. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Same sort of pattern. So what have we got here? Well, uh, verses 18 and 19. Woe to the mockers. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, oh, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so we may know it. Isaiah, will you, will you tell your God to hurry up because we can't see him doing anything in this world? They mock. Or verse 20, woe to the, what do you call them, the perverted? Those who call evil good, good evil. They swap light for darkness. They swap bitterness for sweetness. Woe to that sort of culture. Woe to a culture that says, oh, it's good for pregnant women to terminate life. It's good. It's good. It's a good thing to do. 
Woe to the conceited, verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. (laughs) We don't need any God. Woe to the false heroes, verse 22, 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. There'll be one or two of those in a student fresher week. Uh, look, I've done my third yard. <laughs> hey! There'll be a few of those heroes, no doubt. Or as we award, you know, in this summer, you give a knighthood to Jeffrey Boycott, a man who's convicted for beating his female partner. Why is he a hero? Why does he get a knighthood? Why are our leaders acclaimed? A PM who refuses to acknowledge even how many children he has. Does he know? The leader of the opposition. He's a hero, isn't he, of class justice? Well, unless you're Jewish. Woe to you, false heroes, says Isaiah. These are the bad grapes of the 8th century BC. These are the stink fruit. These are the things that God says, look, I gave Judah, or indeed I gave humanity, so many blessings invested so much and have produced this. And many in society are anguished and crying out and I I won't pause forever. At some point judgment comes. So lastly, here's the certain roar of judgment. You get it twice, 13 to 17 and 24 to 30. So verse 13, here was the historical reality. Verse 13, therefore, my people, says the Lord, will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger. The common people will be parched with thirst. Well, yeah, that happens in a generation. In the the end of the 8th century, this nation is utterly overwhelmed by the nation of Assyria and, and sent into exile and scattered, and they're never the same again. That'll happen. But it is a picture. There is also another day of judgment to come. And so when we read this, we read really at the end of the world. Verse 14. Therefore, look, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. What a picture. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. People will be brought low, everyone humbled. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled. That will happen. But do see, this is part of God's utter commitment to justice. Verse 16. The Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. The Holy One will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. That's what we want, isn't it? Verse 16, 17. All those who have been oppressed receive justice. That's what we want. You watch the news and you whatever it is, it's a brutal news from somewhere in the world and there's, there's footage and It's implied you don't see the worst of it, but children are shot and women are raped as part of conquest by soldiers and people are beaten just for the color of their skin. And even the most hard-hearted of us say, well, that's terrible. Why can't someone do something about it? And the Lord says, yeah, what more could I have done to give these people time? Judgment comes. See, our flickering zeal for justice 
is pathetic compared to God's perfect determination to see it come. We are partisan, biased. And the Lord is the perfect referee and the perfect judge. Or later in the, in the passage, the, when we come back to the consequences again, verse 24, what will happen? Well, therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. What's the, the root problem is this. They have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. That's the problem at its heart. They've rejected the Lord. And so, well, again, in history, again, verse 26. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. It's a funny picture, isn't it? So this time, in sort of the politics of the region, Judah was waning as a power. Assyria is becoming the sort of dominant power and will come and invade and conquer everything. But the Lord says, all that's happening here is I'm, I'm just getting out my dog whistle. Assyria, you can, you can take these people now. I am in charge of history. Come and invade Assyria. And it's a terrifying picture, all of it. Just pick it up at the end, verse 29. Their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there is only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. God is the source of all that is good. And he cannot give us daylight and pleasure apart from himself. If he withdraws, it is just darkness and distress. That's all there is. Because he's not there. So one of the, of course, the frequent biblical pictures for God's justice, his judgment, is that he withdraws. He separates himself from those who have rejected him. Preacher Leighton Ford, he put it memorably. In hell, which we think of mostly as a place, and I guess it is a place, but heaven and hell, they're not also there as well as places biblically, they're relationships with the Lord. Hell, I cut off from him. In hell, the mathematician who lived for his science can't add two and two. The concert pianist who worships himself through his art can't play a single note. The man who lived for sex goes on in eternal lust and there's no body to exploit. The woman who made a god out of fashion and clothes has a thousand dresses but no mirror to see herself. Hell is eternal desire, eternally unfulfilled. Because if the Lord has withdrawn, there is only darkness and distress. That's all there is. It's the certain roar of judgment. So there's chapter 5 of Isaiah, and it has no hope. We will look next week at chapter 6. Chapter 6 has hope. Let me just glance into it with you this morning. You'll see, we won't go into detail, but chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord says, look, there is possibility of atonement. Coal here in Isaiah, we'll come to the reasons for that, has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. There is a way for all you've done wrong to be paid for. And just over the page, chapter 7 and verse 14. Ah, oh, we think this is familiar. 
the Lord himself will give you a sign, chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Ah, at this point in history, it's just breadcrumbs. But God is saying, there is hope, you know. There is hope of atonement, all your crimes being paid for. It'll come through one called Emmanuel. There's the possibility of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Well, that's for the future. But there is atonement offered by Emmanuel. Uh, Rarely in our family, we up to date the things that are on TV or or the cinema. Uh, So last week, it's been on for six weeks, I think, we started watching A Confession. It was on ITV. It's quite good, telly, I guess. Uh, A six-part TV drama. It finishes this week. We started it last week. Um, But in episode one, much of it is a police manhunt. So you've got uh, dozens and dozens of police officers, and they've got the police dogs out, and they even... There's some debate. Have we got enough money off? Stuff it. Let's get the helicopter out. So they get the police helicopter out uh, and blow the budget. There's sort of vast resources going into this manhunt. But they're not looking for a criminal. They're looking for Sean O'Callaghan, who's lost, a missing person. That makes all the difference in the world. Have you got 100 police after you because you're a criminal or because you're lost and they want to rescue you? very different, isn't it? The extraordinary thing for you and me is that God says, even though you're criminals, I come after you to try and rescue you. That's the extraordinary thing. And you and I know that at this point in history, before the Lord Jesus returned in judgment, well, the Bible describes this time in history as it's God's great rescue project. That's just the whole of the story of the Bible is that. God's saying, I'm pouring out all my resources to rescue you. I'm pouring out the life of my son to rescue you. Even though you're criminals, I want to save you. That's very different. But of course, you embrace that now, that rescue now, or in the future, you hear the roar. You hear the darkness and the distress. So we'll sing in just a moment. Rise now, sinner, come to Jesus, pardoning grace to know. Meet him now as gracious Savior. Meet him now as gracious Savior, not just then, as judge alone. That's the offer. And of course, many of us will say, yes, 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 I've been a Christian for decades. Well, here again, this anguished love song. How the Lord laments over the condition of human humanity. Know again that judgment will come. And, and therefore, that is why we continue to embrace Jesus as the possibility of atonement through Emmanuel. There's a way out of the darkness and distress through him. So don't forget It's only through him. And otherwise, Isaiah 5 is our story. Rise now, sinner, come to Jesus, pardoning grace to know. Meet him now as gracious saviour, not just then, as judge alone. Let's pray now.
great God and Father, we thank you and praise you that your justice is perfect. But on that final day when the Lord Jesus returns, justice will be exalted and everyone will say, this is fair. Everyone will say, you could not have done more, God. You gave people time. You gave them a chance. Everyone will know that your justice is perfect. And so, Father, now, here and now, would we continue to give you great thanks and praise that there is a source of atonement, that our future is not just distress and darkness, which we deserve. Would we embrace trust, delight in the Lord Jesus now, we ask, because he is the one who has saved us from this tragic lament. And so we praise him. Amen.